reading from Judges, the book of Judges, this morning beginning at chapter 6, verse 11. Judges, chapter 6, verse 11. And we read the Scripture in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Orpher, which belonged to Joash the the Abezite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us? saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please, do not depart from here, Until I come to you and bring out my present, set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. So Gideon went into his house, prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket, the broth he put in a pot, and brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened cakes, put them on this rock, pour the broth over them, And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes, and fire sprang from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it still stands in Ophrah, which belongs to the Abiezrites. That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, And pull down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here, with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. When the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, 
The altar of Baal was broken down, and the Asherah beside it was cut down. And the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And after they'd searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal? Or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been broken down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jerubbaal. That is to say, let Baal contend against him, because he broke down his altar. Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together, and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the vale of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet, and the Abezerites were called out to follow him, and he sent messengers round throughout all Manasseh, and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher and Zebulun and Naphtali, and they went to meet him. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone, and it's dry on the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early next morning and he squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl of water. Then Gideon said to God, Let not your anger burn against me, but let me speak just one more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and in all the ground be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. This is the word of the Lord. When you come to a story like this about Gideon, you're struck by the fact that we're not reading the story of the call of an individual, for example, to the ministry of the Word and Sacrament, or the call of an individual to become a missionary uh, in uh, some poor part of the world, like France. Uh, you're, not, you're, you're not reading the story, really, of of somebody who's going into religious life, religious uh, orders, or, or, or something like that. There is, there's nothing religious that this man, Gideon, is being called to do. He's being called to do something quite significant. He's being called to rout the enemies of the people of God, but, but he's not being called into some religious order. And uh, that distinguishes him, really, because when we come to church, we kind of think we're going to be talking about somebody who's doing religious things, and Gideon's just going to be doing what he's told and fighting, uh, perhaps. We'll wait and see if that's what happens, but, but certainly he has a very limited uh, raison d'etre for being in the Bible. And w- when we come to look at him, 
We don't immediately identify then with his particular story. I mean, you, you have a particular life. Some of you are uh, studying medicine, perhaps. Maybe you're practicing medicine. Those of us who don't are glad you're doing it, and we're not. Uh, others of you, you are in business, and uh, you're involved in economics. You're taking big globules of money, and you're risking it in the stock exchange on other people's behalf, and we're so glad you're doing that, and we don't have that responsibility. And whatever you look in the, around the room, everybody's doing different things. There are school teachers, and there are people who are teaching in college. There are people who are studying still in college. There are people who are working at street corners, people who are working in steelworks and driving trucks and all kinds of jobs. And we can identify really always with one another, far less with, with Gideon. But I want you to look at the categories, some things we see about this man, Gideon. He is being taught a lesson. We looked at this last time. He's being taught, taught a lesson that no matter who or what he is in himself, with God, he's better. With God, he's better. So, we're told that he's insignificant. Yet, with God, he's going to be mighty. Without God, we're told in verse 15 that he's the weakest and the least. <clears throat> and perhaps you can identify with how he feels about his insignificance and his weakness and his deficiencies. Uh, you, you may be somebody who's important and successful at work, but you struggle at home, or you struggle with loneliness, or you struggle when you come to church. Some of us in this room have inherited an evangelical preoccupation with our interior life and our feelings. Now, feelings are important. We never dismiss people's feelings. But such a, an inward turn never never relents. It never stops demanding more, more praise, more applause, more affirmation. And if we don't get it, it always keeps bringing us down, bringing us down. A preoccupation with our feelings is a form of self-idolatry. And everything in the world revolves around how I feel at any given moment. When God came to Moses, for example, Moses was not feeling very positive about doing what God wanted him to do. God came to Moses and addressed his situation by saying this, I am that I am. And then he said, I am with you. The divine presence is the one reality in the universe you can count out content because there is nowhere where God is not. So it doesn't matter where you go, whether you go into an office or a factory or a hospital room, wherever you go, God is there. And He's fully there because God is spirit and is not localized. He is infinite. So the psalmist can put it like this, you have made known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. So we come to the story of this chapter. It's the story of God's intervention in the life of His idol-loving people. For Christ's sake, God looked down on His people with favor. 
Uh, Because of his faithfulness to his covenant, he forgave his people, and he sought to lead those people back to himself again. And so he sends a prophet. That's at the beginning of chapter 6. We looked at that last time. He sends a prophet, and that prophet reminds them of God's work in times past and reproach them for their current unfaithfulness. Then he sends this holy angel to seek out Gideon, this humble servant who's very cautious in providing for his family. He's one of those who hides in the dens and in the caves and who was, when he's introduced to us, beating the wheat in the wine press, hiding it from these invading armies that were coming through the land. And when the angel said to him, the Lord be with you, uh, Gideon does not immediately think of himself. The Lord is with you. Actually, in our older versions, it's clearer uh, because the English is clearer. The Lord is with thee, meaning you, singular you, not you, plural. The Lord is with you. But he did not immediately think of himself. He thought of the church. We, we saw that in verse 13. Gideon said to him, please, sir, you've just said the Lord is with me. The Lord is with us. If the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened? You ever felt like saying that to God? If you are with us, if you are real, why is this, this, and this happening in the world, in my life, in my church? That's what Gideon says to this angel. If the Lord is with us, why then all has all this happened? And where are all of the wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us. So here's a guy who's he's straight. He shoots straight from the hip. And by faith, as we read on, and as we see him, <clears throat> even though he's been addressed, the Lord is with you, singular, you, Gideon. He thinks of the church. He thinks of the people of God. And he sees the situation in its proper light. Well, as we go on in the story, we find that Gideon believed in God's promise to him personally. God says to him in response, I will be to you, to thee, singular, and thou, that is you, singular, shall strike the Midianites as one man. How do we know that he believed God? Well, he tells us, for now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it's you that are speaking to me. Now, if you follow the flow of the conversation, you'll see that Gideon starts by addressing the angel with a respectful, sir, please, sir, in verse 13. But then by the time you get down, a little further down uh, in verse 15, he's saying, please, Lord. And he's using the divine name, the unique divine proper name. In other words, he's moved from being interested in what the angel is saying to realizing the power and the impact of what the angel is saying. And he's showing a proper regard for God's name. And that's where the issue lies. Having said God's name, Gideon then realizes that he must be very, very sure 
that what is being told him is actually God's Word, because he dare not go and tell to somebody else, this is the Word of God to Israel. If it's not the Word of God to Israel, then he would be taking God's name in vain. So he's very cautious of this, that God's name is holy, and so he's concerned. That's why he asks for a private sign of the speaker's identity. He wanted to be, as the Irish would say, to be sure, to be sure, that it's the Lord who is speaking to him through the angel. And he makes his request not out of unbelief, but out of faith to confirm his faith. And that's where he makes this little proposal. He says to the angel of the Lord, and you can see a mixture of caution and faith in the deal that he strikes with the angel. He says, I'm going to go and I'm going to prepare a little meal for you as a sacrifice, but please do not depart from here. Don't leave here until I come back and bring out my present and then put it before you. That's quite a bold thing to to do, really. He's talking to the… If he's talking to the Lord, he's saying to the Lord, don't you move while I go and get stuff. And he's testing the Lord. Is it really you, the Lord? So that's what he does. He goes, gets the stuff, comes back, and it's proved to him, yes, this, this angel is an angel, and he's a bearer of the Word of God. Now, why would he do that? It's because the godly are exhorted by the beloved John, the disciple, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. One of the scholars, uh, Reformed Orthodox, put put it sort of like this, uh, it is part of a godly person to test the spirits and not rashly to believe every spirit, especially when something new and unaccustomed uh, work is commanded or commanded, so that otherwise it's not thought to be lawful. So something that otherwise would be wrong or, or, or not true, you've got to be really fully persuaded that God is speaking. So none of us really identifies with Gideon in relation to his specific call. But we all belong to Zion, the city of God, and to Jerusalem above that is our mother. And we all have to learn from Scripture what the Word of God means and is, and we need to be reassured that we are hearing the Word of God and that it is the Word of God. Uh, Ambrose, one of the early church preachers through whom St. Augustine became a Christian, In his book, De Spiritus Sancto, writes, Our gifts are then acceptable unto God when we offer them upon the rock, which is Christ, where our actions are by the fire of the Holy Spirit purged, and that which otherwise of its own nature is unclean is of God received and pronounced holy by God. Augustine points out that this sign showed that by the wonderful power of God, without any human labor or help, the enemies of God's people were going to be nuked. Well, Augustine doesn't use that word. They're going to be consumed, overcome by the fire of God. 
So with this, the angel of the Lord then departs, leaving Gideon uh, suitably moved and afraid. He says, Alas, O Lord God, for now I've seen the angel of God face to face. He's terrified. That's something we find all over the Gospels. When Jesus does something extraordinary, people are terrified. When the angel comes to talk to Mary, she's frightened. When the angel comes to speak to Zechariah, he's frightened. Angels scare people. Here Gideon finds himself in the company of one of those uh, who, having seen an angel or a vision from God, feared that they would die. Isaiah, the prophet, chapter 6 of Isaiah, when he sees the Lord high and exalted, he feels as if he's going to be destroyed and he's going to come apart because he's seen the Lord. Over and over again, when Moses asked to see God's face, he's told, man shall not see me and live. In John chapter 1, no one has seen God at any time. The blessed apostle Paul speaks of Jesus, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. In other words, when you think of Jesus, you think of the man in his humanity, in his human nature, one of us. But Jesus in his divinity is invisible. In his divinity, he is infinite. There is no limitation to him. In the book of Exodus, Israel is terrified when God descends on Sinai. And St. Jerome <clears throat> says that the prophet Isaiah was killed by the Jews for saying that he had seen the Lord high and lifted up, sitting on his throne in the temple, as he does in Isaiah 6. They accused Isaiah of lying, and they killed him for it. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John are shown the deity, the majesty, the glory of the Lord Jesus shining through his humanity, and they're overcome. Their human faculties are not able to bear the overwhelming experience. They, they fall to the earth like dead men because the human frame, our physical frame, and our brain are not designed to bear the overwhelming experience of meeting with God. The human frame in its unglorified state is not fitted to see divine things or bear even the divine presence. Jesus does a miracle, remember, on the boat, and Peter falls down and he says to Jesus, please go away, please go away, please go away. I can't be near you. I'm a sinful man. You might argue that you've never felt such fear or consuming guilt. Well, lucky you. Maybe you've never known the presence of God in any real sense. The presence of God when you know that you've fallen short of God's glory and you can see your sin and see that God, what God sees and it overwhelms you. St. Augustine reminds us that God used images and forms and similitudes through the angels to show that he was present with our fathers and he spoke to them. They listened to, he listened to them and he admonished them. He even, he even used people's minds and gave them, they gave them inner perception of divine things. Gideon did not see God as God was, but he did see the instrument, the angel, through whom God's voice was heard. 
And it's your destiny and mine one day to see the essence of God. To see the essence of God. The pure in heart shall see God. Now we see through a mirror dimly then, face to face. We know that we will see him face to face when we are like him, for we shall see him as he is. Well, Gideon's overwhelmed with this thing, this thought. But the incident with the fire convinced Gideon that this was the word of God that he was hearing. And throughout the Bible, we are not asked merely to presuppose the authority of the Bible. We're not asked to to pull out something within ourselves, a presupposition within ourselves that the Bible is true. The Bible is always authenticated. Throughout Scripture, the Bible is being authenticated by the actions of God Himself. So when Moses is going to Israel with the Word of God, he wonders if anybody's going to listen to it or believe it. And God tells him to throw down his rod, his uh, shepherd's crook. So he throws it down and it turns into a snake. Then God says to him, now take it by the tail. Moses says, you cannot be serious, man. Uh, Take it by the tail. So he takes it by the tail and it's back as a shepherd's crook, as his rod again. He's told to put his hand in his cloak. And then take it out again, and his hand is covered with leprosy. He's told to put it back in there, and it's, when he takes it out, it's healed again. He's to use these as signs for the Israelites so that they know that he has come from God and has the Word of God. Later on in Deuteronomy, it's talking about prophets. How can you take a prophet seriously as speaking the Word of God? Well, only if he passes the gold standard of 100% accuracy in any prediction that he makes. Anything less than that, you don't believe them. In other words, God provides reasons why we can trust the Word of God. When Jesus comes speaking the Word of God, how do they know it's the Word of God? Because he performs signs and wonders. When he goes home to heaven and he sends out the apostles, and he tells them that the apostles are to be the foundation of the church and the people are to listen to them and what they say and what they write is to be held as absolute, as Holy Scripture, how do they know? Because the the apostles go around doing signs and wonders like Jesus did. And they take note of them. The people take note of them that they had been with Jesus. Well, as a result of Gideon's obedience, receiving the word of God, God says, peace to you. You shall not die. You're not going to die. Gideon builds an altar, and he names the altar the Lord is peace. Well, that's that's, that's the background to the story. Now the sermon and the three points that I have for you. First of all, in light of that word of God and its confirmation, number one, 
He deals with the idols at home. He deals with the idols at home, verse 27. Uh, He does it at night because he doesn't want his family seeing him or anybody else in the village seeing him. But he deals with the idols. He puts them away. He does it for the Lord's sake and for the sake of Israel. And uh, secondly, he demonstrates his credentials. You can see this uh, where he asks for this public sign, not for his sake, but for Israel's sake. We're told that he is clothed in the Spirit when he asks for this sign of the fleece. Let me put out this fleece. Let it be dry and the ground be wet. Let it be wet and the ground be dry. I mean, what's going on there? Is he trying to make a deal with God or something? Is this what we have to do when I can't decide one thing or another? I want you to notice it's nothing to do with deciding what the will of God was. He knew the will of God very, very clearly. But what he wants is for Israel to know that he is the bearer of the Word of God. They need to believe. The people who are going to fight with him, go into battle against these huge, enormous, overwhelming armies, they have confidence. And so he asks for a public sign to do it for Israel's sake. And the Lord gives the sign. And he never rebukes Gideon. He doesn't tell him off because... God was glad to do it. The whole fleece incident was not aimed at, at, at him knowing or, or discovering or finding the will of God. He knows it. Verses 36, 37 show the signs were in response to the communication of God's will. He was telling the people what God's will was. And here's the application for you and me. You and I need never be wrestling with, the, with this question— What is the will of God for my life? The will of God for your life is not a matter of guesswork. It's a matter of homework. Okay? You just need to go back to the Bible and read the Bible for yourself. 1 Corinthians 4. 1 Thessalonians 4. This is God's will for you. Be holy. First Corinthians Thessalonians five. This is God's will for you. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. This is God's will for you from Jesus. Love your enemies. Forgive those who wrong you. Be generous with your resources. Jesus says, Whoever does the will of God like this is my brother, my sister, my mother. The Apostle John writes, whoever does the will of God abides forever. It's easy to know the will of God. Just do your homework. It's easy. And yet, God, in calling us to do these things, has given us these signs, the signs and wonders that Jesus and the apostles performed, the sign of the cross, where you see how seriously God loves you, how you see how seriously God takes our sin that that Jesus should die for our sin, how seriously God wants 
to draw you into his life. The sign of the cross, the sign of the resurrection, new life, new life in Christ, new life in an eternal sense, the resurrection of the dead. These signs not only are given to us, but they're credited to us. They are reckoned to our account. We are reckoned already to have died with him. We are reckoned already to have been raised with him. It's as good as done. We're just to trust that and get on with whatever is at your hand to do. And God will give you grace. And one day God will give you glory. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would lift up our hearts to you today and teach us to enjoy you forever as we seek to live for you here. In the power and grace of the Holy Spirit. Amen.